0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez with Reuters Breaking Views, based in Singapore. I've been speaking to investigative journalist and author Oliver Bullough about his new book, Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back, out in September. Journalist and writer Nicholas Shaxson joins us on the line from Berlin. Nick has done extensive work on tax havens and money laundering, and his own book, The Finance Curse, How Global Finance is Making Us All Poorer, was released in October. Oliver, I'll start with you. It's an incredible story that you're telling us from Reno, Nevada, Ukraine, Jersey. um, And all these stories obviously have a common thread. People exploiting loopholes or creating them uh, to hide money uh, and and, um, expand their wealth. These are brilliant anecdotes. A lot of them are very recent. So I was wondering how much of this is really created by the financial system as we know it, or is it really amplified by the structures that we have?
0: I think people have always stolen things. I think, I mean, stealing is is, is a pretty basic human instinct. But I think there was, in the past, a limit on how much you could physically steal, which was essentially how large your house was. If you had a, a decent sized house, you'd fill it with stuff and then you were done. There was nothing else that you could steal without people really noticing. The amazing thing about the modern financial system is it allows you to steal an enormous amount and not have to keep it in your house. You can send it, Via the magic of offshore finance, to almost anywhere you want, without anyone really knowing about it. And I think that's where you know this sort of modern call it kleptocracy, call it whatever this modern form of theft, which I call moneyland, began, which is with the creation of this sort of globalized financial system in the nineteen sixties. So I call it, in a way, the dark side of globalization. We hear a lot about. The light side of globalization, the efficient allocation of capital, and so on. But this is the dark side of globalization: how the owners of capital are essentially hiding it um, in, in a way that, that, that evades democratic oversight in order to essentially increase their power at the expense of the rest of us.
1: Nick, you've written a little bit about this both in, uh, in, in fact, in both of your of your books about the role of developed of uh, companies from the developed world in the developing world, um, aiding. Uh, this aiding and abetting this, this hiding of of wealth. I mean, what's your view on how much of this is is encouraged, perhaps, by the systems that we now have?
2: I, I think it's thoroughly encouraged. And, you know, the, the banking system in particular also has the ability to create money. So um, it's not just money that's transferred from one place to another. There's also a large amount of money being created. But, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon because... Here you have basically the citizens of poor countries and the citizens of rich countries all being fleeced by this system, which um, is enabling uh, effectively, you know, the rich, richest, and most powerful people through whether they're legal or illegal mechanisms to take money um, through, you know, mechanisms that uh, most reasonable people would agree are not. Uh, you know, are not acceptable and get incredibly rich and then stash, you know, hide the money. And the Western banking system, the Western system of accountancy and law firms, it, it, it creates it's a whole sort of infrastructure that has grown up to service this. Um, uh, fleecing of populations and stashing the wealth offshore, safely offshore. Um, And it is not, you know, so it's not a passive thing that's happening. It's not banks just accepting money and say, yep, we'll look after it. It's bankers, you know, often you get bankers flying out to, to developing countries and visiting, you know, yacht races and things like that. And chatting people up and saying, you know, please, can we handle your money? We'll stash it off safely. And the accountant saying, well, you know, we'll set up a really uh, sophisticated structure for you so you can really hide your money well and the lawyers join in. So it's a very sort of aggressive um, uh, uh, system that is is making the problem an awful lot worse. And it's not, you know, these, play- these aren't passive players. These are very active players um, making the system and then encouraging rich people to use it.
1: And and the countries themselves, I mean, in your book, you have a couple of anecdotes of how companies have either through um, passports, diplomatic immunity, again, encouraging, encouraging this and not just the institutions.
0: Yeah, it's an essentially, I, I see it as the inevitable result of the fact that money flows are international, but laws are national. So if you have a lot of money, you can look at the world in a very strategic way and pick and choose which laws you want to obey which essentially means that you are always going to be a step ahead of the police forces that may be or may not be chasing yeah. you. Um, you. You are always going to be in, in be able to keep your money somewhere where it's safe. And if if your money is somewhere which suddenly becomes unsafe for whatever reason, it goes unstable or they pass a law you don't like, your money can just move somewhere else. And, it, and it's it's this constant game of cat and mouse between... Uh, the, you know, the authorities and the wealthy, it, it, which the wealthy is, has an inbuilt advantage. I think I have a particularly, I think, an entertaining anecdote, but also a very disturbing anecdote about a wealthy uh, Saudi gentleman who sought to avoid paying his wife uh, a fair divorce settlement and had himself made ambassador to St Lucia. And therefore, when he came in to, before uh, you know, a divorce um, proceedings in the UK, he was able to say, well, no, I, I have diplomatic immunity. Um, it's that form of being able to abuse the or, or misuse the laws in 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 jurisdictions outside where you are in order to influence your life in 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 a country like Britain or a country like the United States, and, and it it it's essentially a system that is only available to those that can afford it. It's obviously not cheap to be made ambassador of St. Lucia to the International Maritime Organization. But if you can afford it, then it it easily repays itself. That's essentially how it works. All of these tricks which Nick's talking about, that lawyers use or accountants use, they're they're very expensive. But if you're rich, you can easily afford them. They're just shut off to the rest of us.
1: Mm. So the dark side of of globalisation, obviously this has a number of consequences, some of which you're exploring in the book, whether it's, um, you know, Problems on transparency. We don't know where the wealth is. We can't hold it to account. So accountability, the wealth imbalances that it creates. So I was thinking a little bit, you know, the title of your book is Why They Rule the World and How to Take It Back. So I wondered a little bit about, you know, what how can we tackle this? And you know, perhaps Nick, if I can ask you, I mean there's been there have been moves in the UK in particular, um, in May, uh, there was the ruling that forces the uh, disclosure of beneficial owners for UK companies in in UK overseas territories. So we're we're taking steps towards transparency, but is that really enough towards redressing the problems that are created here and the constantly opening loopholes?
2: Well, I think that um, you know, if you look at the problem, you know, the offshore system and then the whole kind of private infrastructure around it, um, it, it is so vast and complex that there is no kind of magic bullet that is going to come anywhere close to fixing it um and it touches you know if you think of pretty much any area of economic life you know if you think about i don't know monopolies or think about inequality or if you think about the corruption of markets these places the offshore system is right at the heart of all of them Um, you know making the big bigger making multi you know rewarding um you know billionaires and multinationals at the expense of small businesses and and ordinary people everything kind of um Uh, you know, this increases inequality. Um, At the end of the day, if you're going to make a serious um, change to the system, you're talking ultimately about political change. You're talking about um, sweeping changes to political platforms um, uh, that need to come about. And at the moment, we haven't, you know, we've had the global financial crisis that potentially could have delivered that sweeping change, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think now we are seeing a kind of second phase, a much nastier phase where uh, you, know, the, you know, the right kind of t- political changes are very much possible, but there are also changes that go in the other direction. So we are in a very interesting time now. Um, but I think, you know, you do need a completely new political, um, political players on the scene in the main countries, such as the United States or the United Kingdom, if you're going to make a proper dent in this.
1: Well, obviously, in the United States, there are questions over some of the practices in, in the White House. So, you know, we're probably not getting the moral leadership that perhaps we would want to see in the in the us
2: well, that's always been the problem with the offshore system because the offshore system is used by the you know the wealthiest and most powerful people in society and that's one of the reasons that's made it so hard to tackle um it's why developing countries have have um been so quiet on the issue in terms of their leaderships because usually their leaders are, are involved in it as in britain as well if you look at the british establishment you know it is. It is now uh, very much um, involved in the offshore system, and uh, so so when the political leadership is so is so deeply personally involved in the system it 's very difficult indeed to change I
0: mean I think part of the problem one of, one of the reasons I, I call it money land is, is this sort of the idea that there is a country which has been created for the for the very rich is that this isn 't a conspiracy. It would be much easier to deal with if there was somewhere a man with a white cat in a swivel chair that we could take him out and the problem would be solved. This is a system which has been created over 50, 60 years. Um, it's very deeply embedded in our economy. In some way, it, it is our economy and the money yeah. flows seamlessly seamlessly. Um, from centre to centre and, and it becomes very hard to do anything about I think it's very instructive and this is something I talk about in, in, in Moneyland it's very instructive to look at the, the financial crisis the American response uh, to the tax evasion being enabled by Swiss banks particularly Credit Suisse and UBS Would they, they you know they assaulted them very hard The the, the Department of Justice levied a Big fines on them, um, and essentially force them to open up and, and stop providing the privacy they used to provide that the services that used to be provided them by Credit Suisse and UBS and the other smaller Swiss banks are essentially now available in South Dakota and nevada so you have this system where, whereby if, if the services stop being available in one part of the world, then, then the loophole immediately opens up somewhere else because there's always this money that requires servicing. And if you can service that money, there's a lot of money for you to be made. In fact, we now have, in a way, a more pernicious system because the money is being kept safe from the United States by the United States. And, and that is a system which will be much, much harder to fight against than it was when it was just a question of fighting against Switzerland. So it is, it is a constantly shifting system um, fluid situation which is which is which requires a global approach to deal with. And, and as soon as you have, sadly, one country holding out, whether that's Switzerland or whether that's the United States or whether that's wherever, um, that will make it immediately very difficult to deal with. Everyone needs to act together. And fr- sadly, certainly in the current environment, it's pretty hard to see how that's going to happen.
1: So transparency is obviously necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um... Yeah, I
0: mean, transparency is necessary to give... The people that the ninety nine percent or the ninety nine point nine percent um the ability to see what 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 the wealthy members wealthiest members of society are up to um, if we don 't have transparency over the ownership of property, then the you know the very wealthiest and most powerful people in the world will always be able to hide what they own and what they 've stolen um, that's is important because it 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 makes it you know make, it evens up the, the the two sides of the battle, but really we need a lot more money going to enforcement of the law, particularly here in Europe. The Americans have been quite good at enforcing the law in the past. Um, but in Europe, particularly here, in, yeah, and in the UK, I suppose in particular, we really need to start taking seriously the, the business of putting people in jail. Um, there have been a disgraceful number of scandals involving UK PR firms, um, UK banks, UK lawyers, um, the, the number of people that have gone to jail that you could count on the fingers of one hand. And that really needs to change if we're going to have any hope of bringing these kind of practices under control.
2: So, and I, I would second that. I mean, I think, I think the UK really has played an absolutely, in, historically, a pernicious role in this whole game. It has had this kind of what they call a competitive global model where they want to attract as much money as possible to the city of London. And the way to do that is to relax standards and to relax, um, you know, money laundering standards and things like that, but also standards of financial regulation to allow Wall Street banks to come in and do stuff in London they wouldn't be allowed to do at home. Um, it's just a general see no evil model model that the UK has adopted, and it has created financial stability risks. It it has um, facilitated all manner of crimes around the world, organised crime, money laundering, terrorist finance. Um, I was talking to a counter-terrorism expert not so long ago, and he was telling me how uh, uh, once you understood the role of the City of London in the UK you began to see the whole country in a different light. And in terms of the sort of alliance between the UK and the US, um, it was a much less reliable partner. And that's, that's really worrying them over there in the United States. Um, uh, just, you know, what the city of London is going to do, what foreign interests are going to um, use the UK and influence the UK um, using the city, city of London. So the UK is a, is a particularly problematic country, and, and I would argue that it is the most dangerous country in the financial system, um, not just because of the City of London, but also because it runs this network of tax havens around the world, the Cayman Islands, Jersey, Bermuda, um, British Virgin Islands, places like this are all British uh, territories. So the UK really does need to be um, pointed to and exposed in this uh, in this whole game.
1: What about the imbalances? So this is something that you you discuss in, in the book, Oliver, and, and goes back to some of the themes, uh, Nick, that you've written about, which is you know the the giant sucking sound out of resource rich developing countries and and in particular in in your book it's 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 factor the, what is it, Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which means that the US can ask for information from other people, but it does not have to disclose um, back. And in particular, it doesn't have to disclose to the countries that most need this information.
0: It was the, the, the response to the financial crisis, is it, the response to the anger over tax evasion, was this, yeah, FATCA, the, the, the American demand that, that, that foreign countries provide information on American citizens who have um, assets in their banks or... or and. Um, And and that's great and good as far as it goes. And the world did the same thing, or most of the rest of the world did the same thing with what's called the CRS, the Common Reporting Standard. Sadly, those two systems, FATCA and the CRS, don't talk to each other. So we've ended up, in a way, with an even worse system than we had before, since those two, wherever there's mismatches, there's always opportunities to hide in the loopholes that are created. And there is an enormous loophole that's created. This is one of the reasons why Nevada and South Dakota have done so well since the financial crisis. I mean, I think and on the, the latest data, there is now there are now $234 billion worth of assets held in in South Dakotan trusts, which is an increase of 10 times since the financial crisis. You know, this is... All because of the mismatches between CRS and, and FATCA, it makes it very, very easy for for foreigners, international families, as they call them, to put their money in South Dakota and hide it from the Indian authorities, the Chinese authorities, the Russian authorities, or whoever. And th- this is this this sort of movement of money from the developing world to the developed world is is almost impossible to overestimate. I mean, um, Global Financial Integrity estimates that that one point one trillion dollars a year is being taken out of the poor countries and put in the rich countries and that I mean that's obviously a guess because it's got a lot of noughts at the end but but I mean I try and work it out just to count to a trillion would take you 31,000 years it's an absolutely enormous number and that amount of money is being stolen every single year and 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 this all of this money which is building up offshore though whether you count South Dakota as offshore is a different matter but, but being built up in in sort of anonymous ways all of this money wants to be kept secret. So, so it becomes a sort of a, a, a pressure group against democracy, a pressure group against transparency. And the more of it that builds up, the harder it will be to, to, to restore democratic control over our economies, which is something that I really think we absolutely have to do if we're going to have any chance of tackling you know, this growing scourge of inequality, which is really spreading all around the world and, and undermining um, stability almost everywhere.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you both for coming on. It's been a pleasure. The Exchange is produced by Sharon Lamb. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out every day on breakingviews.com. Do tune in for the next edition.